What do you need to know beyond being fit and athletic? Take a walk on the wild side with today's guest, Frank Forensich of Exuberant Animal, on episode 002 of Ancestral Health Radio. Ancestral Health Radio bridges the divide between our modern technology and inherent ancestral wisdom. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Take a walk on the wild side. Wow. Episode 2 of Ancestral Health Radio. Thank you for... Uh, joining me again, I just want to let you guys know that I kind of messed up on the beginning of this episode. I don't know exactly what happened. I didn't know whether or not I was recording or I wasn't recording or whatever happened, but I missed a little bit of Frank's episode just in the very beginning where he was describing his his uh, his health journey or some of his childhood woes as far as his, his health had gone, but uh, I got most of it. I got almost all of it, as a matter of fact, so no, no need to worry. All I needed to do is uh, re-record his introduction, and voila, you guys have most of the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, be sure to email me at james at ancestralhealthradio.com. But again, um, let me just tell you how thankful I am to have you guys on board with this. Uh, this has been a long time coming, some four years in the making, and it wouldn't be possible without you. So again, uh, this is packed full of information. Um, we talk about ch- uh, F- Frank's childhood struggles with suboptimal health, how regular exercise dramatically changed Frank's life in childhood, and how uh, studies at Stanford led him to question the history of his body, and so much more, guys. Um, we go into talking about habitat literacy, bioregionalism, uh, the idea of the long body, uh, short body blues. Um, essentially, uh, we navigate the long body, many of those core concepts, and a lot of the common ills caused by following a short body prescription. So again, um, thank you, and leave leave a five star review or some comments for me in the um, in iTunes. It really does help the visibility of the show and help us rank higher for people who really do need this information. So again, thank you again, again, again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will talk to you guys in the next episode. Until then, enjoy. Frank Forensich is an internationally recognized expert on health and human performance. As an engaging speaker and movement teacher, Frank brings a unique long body perspective to the human predicament. He has a BA from Stanford University in Human Biology and Neuroscience. He is a member of the Council of Directors of the True Health Initiative. He's also black belt ranked in karate and aikido and is a main contributor for Paleo Magazine and has also traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins in the ancestral environment. He's been named by Experience Life Magazine as one of the five visionaries leading the charge to better health and a healthier world. Thank you, Frank, for coming on. I greatly appreciate your time spent here with Ancestral Health Radio. To begin our session today, what or where, rather, did you begin on your health journey? Swimming and water polo, that my health was transformed. And it was that regular swimming, that regular exercise that really changed my body dramatically. And by the time I got out of high school, I was as fit and healthy as as my peers. And I became kind of an evangelist for for health and fitness at that point. And I became sort of an omnivore on on physical activity. So I branched out, I got involved in um, intercollegiate water polo and then in rock climbing and martial arts. And I, I just loved all of it. And my studies at Stanford led me to start to question about what is the history of my body? Where did I come from? Where did this marvelous thing come from? And my professors encouraged me. They said, if you're really curious about this stuff, you need to go to the homeland. You need to go to Africa. And so I did. I made several trips. And in the meantime, I continued my studies in martial art. And it all grew out from there. So I'm, I'm just delighted to have had that experience 
at a time when now the ancestral health community is really starting to blossom and more and more people are getting involved. And it, it's really a wonderful time. Absolutely, yeah. And that's, uh, I think you might have went a little bit deeper than most people. I don't think most people actually think of their body as, uh, what history do I have with my body? Because a lot of people I don't feel have that connection with their body, and especially in today's day and age. Um, so that's great. So so where did that lead you? Where where did that lead your, your uh, health journey? So you began to explore uh, martial arts and karate, and you went to the homeland. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, the, the trips to Africa were, were fascinating. I spent some time with the Hadza Bushmen in Tanzania, and then later on, a brief period of time, with the Jurassic or the Kungushman in Botswana. And that was instructive, although you're only able to learn so much in, their, in those kind of conditions because their cultures are radically different. You have to assume that the conditions for them now are drastically different from their, their true ancestral conditions. Right. But... I think mostly what I learned was the thought experiment of just having my feet on the ground in those conditions and looking around at the habitat and thinking, wow, I'm a, I'm a reasonably good athlete and I'm reasonably fit, but I would have a hard time making a living in those conditions. So it was more the questions that, that it posed to me than the answers that I got from the Hadza. I mean, it was, it was delightful to watch them hunt and to see their bodies in motion, and to see how they organize themselves, that was instructive. But for me, it was the most fascinating thing was asking the questions about how would I make a living here, and what would I need to know beyond being fit and athletic. And that's that. There's a big answer there. And I and th that's great. And there's a lot of. Uh uh, studies now done on the Hadza people as well too uh, regarding their diets and I know during uh, uh, right now the paleo scene and uh, the ketogenic diet are, are kind of like a real big thing that's happening right now and I think the Hadza weren't they the ones that also consumed a high amount of uh, tubers as well as honey uh, in their diet as well? I think so yes and I didn't have any exposure to the uh, gathering practices I got to go out with the uh, with you might call it the boys club Oh, absolutely. The male hunters, and they, they shot a colobus monkey, and they roasted him over the fire, and they, they ate that, and it was it was very classic. But uh, I, I didn't get to survey their whole lifestyle. By oh, okay. So, and that's interesting. I'm always curious, you know, and I get this I get this question when I bring up rewilding, or I try to bring up this conversation with other people that aren't familiar with it. You know, I start bringing in these ancestral concepts. And then, you know, someone will tell me, you know, uh, you know, well, what about their, their, you know, the men went hunted, hunted and gathered, or how did that work? Did they bring the food home? What did that look like? And so you're telling me that when they hunted and gathered, did they just eat the food right there on the spot? They did in that case. Now, I'm sure that you've got to remember in the panel, there's a huge diversity of habitats and tribes and game animals and everything else. So there would have been huge diversities in behavior. And I'm sure a lot of uh, situations, they would have been taking the meat back to camp or actually, if it was a large animal, possibly moving the entire camp to cluster around the animal. So um, in this particular case, they built the fire right there on the spot, roasted the animal on the spot, and that was it. And then they carried on, and the rest of the day was spent in sort of a walkabout. Okay. All right. And um, and that's so interesting, too. So I like how you said the boys' club, right? So, <laughs> so typically, that's, that's exactly the men would go out in a small kind of tribe. I'm not sure how many, uh, or, or group, rather. I'm not sure how many were with you during that time. Uh, yeah, it was about half a dozen guys. Half a dozen guys. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Um, and it's so funny because I think about you know as I'm in the modern world right now, uh, I have a regular nine to five. So right now I'm a shipping receiving manager in a warehouse. You know? <laughs> but the way I look at it is that I'm actually in a small tribe with these you know ten to twelve other men, you know, and we're all hunting, going in through our aisles, finding these products, and doing what it is. It's just so funny. 
uh, having that lens, at least, you know, we understand that we don't want to go live uh, a, an ancestral hunter-gatherer life way as far as, you know, going back and living in caves or whatever that, that mainstream people tend to think when they think of this idea. But we want to kind of look at them objectively and find out what principles they use as far as their community, right? Um, their, maybe their hunting practices and how can we integrate that into our modern lifestyle. So how are you, uh, what are you learning from or what did you learn from them that you uh, are using now today in your practice? That's a tricky one because, of course, I didn't speak their language, so I don't know the, the intimate details of right. their life. Okay. And so it's, it's a big imagination project for me, but so much of it gets back to paying attention to the details of habitat. And that's something that, I mean, it, it's almost like, um, you might call it habitat literacy, whereby I was with these guys on the ground in the same place in the same time, and they were seeing a lot more than what I was seeing. Because they had that familiarity, they, they, their neuroplastic bodies had learned over you know, the course of their childhood to see the subtle nuances of their habitat. And that can only be done with the, the long exposure and this intimate knowledge that, that's built up over time. So that's something that I try and do. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I get out into a habitat that's local here, and I try and build that up little by little over time. But it takes years, you know. It, it's not something that can happen just by going on a little camping trip. No, you not at to, all. You have to build it up over time. And, it, and it's more than just observing the animals. It's observing the plants and the textures and the, the temperature differences, how the weather changes. There, there's so much to it. And... You know, I'm educated in a modern Western way. They were educated in their own way, same brains, roughly, but learning a completely different way of living in nature. Right. And, and you know, there's a big buzzword that I hear in the rewilding co community called bioregionalism. Yes. And so yes. that's, you know, also, so you came from America here, from the Pacific Northwest, all the way over to their tribe. Where so for you even you know even if you were the world's uh, greatest uh, ethnobotanist or, or or whatever it was and you knew your landscape like the back of your hand, uh, you would still be considered a child or you know an infant crawling when it came to going all the way to Africa, right? Right, and even if I had had that intimate knowledge of habitat, there's still the tribal dimension that is essential because every member of that tribe holds a certain kind of knowledge and a certain piece of the oral tradition that is essential for the tribe to survive. So the, the knowledge is not contained in any one individual, and it, it's certainly not um, dependent on the athletic ability of any one individual. It's the tribe that lives or dies together. And the, uh, the story that I... I take, not from my own personal experience, but the book The Old Way by Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. She grew up with the, uh, with the Kung Bushmen in um, South Africa. And she talks about the poison on the arrowheads. And this is, this is just fascinating to me because the poison on the arrowheads comes from the larva of a particular insect and that insect lives at the base of a particular bush and it can only be harvested at a particular season under certain conditions and you would never know that the only way you would know that is if you were part of an oral tradition and had that knowledge passed down from the elders to the younger members of the tribe over time and this is why Native communities put such an emphasis on this continuity between generations. Yeah. It's you know tribal eldership is essential for these people. So that's another dimension to this that I think is re we really need to be keep in mind. Yeah, and um, that that brings us into I guess what we could talk about the long body. You know what you've been so passionate about in spreading this word of the long body, considering uh, now that. We understand that, as I uh, again, I hear you say all the time, it's not reductionalism, 
right? right. We're, uh, we're now trying to look everything holistically, right? So we're trying to look at the body, its environment, its landscape, and we're trying to put all those pieces together now to try and create uh, a community or a tribe, essentially, right? Our own kind of unique community or tribe. Right, and you know, to get to this idea of the long body, I kind of start from the other side, which is the short body, and mm. this is the idea um, in Western culture where we treat the body as a standalone object. We treat the body in isolation from habitat, and we treat it um, in laboratory settings where we feel like, well, we could just put certain substances into the body and we can exercise it with certain sets and reps, and then, therefore, if we follow the formula, it will be healthy. But that is, that is fundamentally flawed because we have these powerful continuities between the individual body and habitat, tribe, and culture. And it's those continuities with our life support systems that actually keep us alive. <laughs> and we've ignored that. It, it, you know, I've been to many doctors and alternative providers over the years, and never do they ask about my relationship with habitat. They never ask about my relationship with tribe or culture. And these are, these are powerful life support systems. And if you don't take this into account, you're, you're going to come up with the wrong answer as to what, what keeps us alive. So that's where I came up with this idea of the law of body. Our body is continuous with the so-called outside world. Right. Where we aren't uh, an animal separated from nature. We're not divorced from our ecology. Uh, we are part of it. And it's funny because that's what I like to tell people that are new to the concept as well, too. Is And because I, I'm, I work in that warehouse, right? So I'm talking to these guys. And I, you know, some, some new guy will come in and I'll say, okay, well, take a look at this. Just look outside just for a second. And I want you to tell me what's natural about that. You know, what do you see in the landscape that has been untouched by, by our hands, by human hands? And you can't because as far as the eye sees, you know, there's plants that we've put into the ground to make it look landscape. You know, we, we go into apartments where uh, we pay more money for it to look landscape, where it looks more like we're inside of nature rather than we're divorced from it. So I just think it's, I, I think it's hilarious that, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, so far gone in the wrong direction and that it's hard for us to even look. Uh, you know, I, I, I say it like it's the matrix. You know, people are trapped in the system and, you know, they've taken the red pill, not the blue pill. So uh, when I bring this to their attention, they look out and they're like, oh my gosh, like you can see the the uh, the light bulb switch on for them, you know, as soon as I say that. And I bring up uh, some of your work as well, too, your concepts, especially about the long body because it makes so much sense. And wh where where did you get that concept? Where did you hear that? Is that originally yours or did you did you hear that from... Well, I heard a very obscure reference to the long body from the Iroquois tradition. So it, it, it probably has some Native American roots, but... I've done some research to dig this up, and, and there's very little. So I'm, I'm just going to assume that it's part of Native culture in general, and I think it's, it's sort of um, a status quo idea for most of human history. I mean, if you look at the history of ideas, I think interdependence is one of the oldest of all human ideas, and it's common through all Native traditions. So... I think they wouldn't even have stopped the question. The thing that's weird and odd is to is our point of view, where we look at the body in isolation. We look at the body as an object, and that's what's really strange. So it's a, it's an old idea. It's an ancient idea, and I, I I just feel like I'm fortunate because I'm in a position now to kind of rediscover it and redefine it. Um, in, in modern terms. Right. So what are some long body practices that you might do? Um, I don't know, it might not even be day to day, but some of the things that you find that might be extremely foundational for someone to start building this type of practice. <laughs> right, well, obviously outdoor exercise is, I think, that it's gotta be the centerpiece of everything that we do because that's the, that builds that continuity between the short body and habitat. Okay. And 
you know, we hear more and more people going outdoors to exercise, and the, you know, the trailheads are packed just about wherever you go. You know, people are, are getting the message, but they're not getting it completely. Right. And I'll give you a, a little story on this. When, when I lived in Seattle, there's a couple of uh, trailheads that are not too far from Seattle proper, and the trailheads are always packed. You know, there, there's always people on these trails. And I would go up and hike these things and listen. It, you, it's inevitable you hear the conversations of other people. Mm-hmm. And you go up these trails and you're in a natural setting, in a nature environment, and the conversation usually sounds like this. Uh, I heard on Facebook, oh, so Google's doing this, Microsoft's doing this, oh, yeah, I got a new MacBook Pro. And people so are talking right. technology, because they're from Seattle, and they really aren't immersed in nature to any significant no. extent at all. So they're doing outdoor exercise, but they're not really building that continuity between the body and habitat. So one of the things I recommend to people is pay attention to your language. When you go outdoors, you need to probably start by not talking at all That's- <laughs> and observing where you are and spending time letting your body Commune with nature, if you will. Absolutely. It sounds like hippie talk, but that's okay. You know, that's I think what needs to happen at the beginning. So, and then of course, the more time you can spend outdoors, the better. It's um, and that's one of the dilemmas of the modern age is that we don't we don't have much time to do that, and our access to nature is pretty highly restricted too. So it's a dilemma, but that's that's a good place to start. The other thing I really recommend for people is on the tribal side of the long body is to start engaging in more rich communication, which means getting away from the electronic devices and spending more time in actual face-to-face contact with people. That's rich communication, and that's how our bodies evolved to communicate with one another. Rich communication is more than just exchanging data points <laughs> or oh, exchanging words. Yeah. There's a whole nonverbal component that's essential to building that tribal continuity. Yeah. How many times have you gotten a text message mixed up with somebody else? Right, right. It just seems like a way to promote misunderstandings at you know at light speed. <laughs> well I once heard that you know what is it, eighty percent of what you perceive from another person is their body language. You know, and then maybe another 10% is actually the, their tonality and the rest is actually what they say. So, uh, yeah, it's the whole picture. Once again, it comes back to the long body, right? Everything, right. it kind of comes back to that concept of the long body. And, uh, you know, oh, go for it. Sorry. Um, well, the other thing about the tribe and the long body with tribe, the thing that is really hot right now is Sebastian Younger's book called Tribe. And this, I think, is fundamental because um, for those people who, who haven't read the book or don't know the story, Younger is a journalist. He went and participated in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and he studied the soldiers coming back to the U.S. Uh, with PTSD quite often. And his conclusion is that their symptoms of PTSD are exacerbated by the fact that they're coming back to a culture that is highly individualistic and doesn't offer the tribal dimension that would help them to heal. So his conclusion is that the, the, the problem does not lie with those soldiers. The problem lies with us. We are the problem. And we have not created a culture that will help those those people to heal. So, and that, I think, is, is essential reading for a long body point of view, building that continuity across the tribe. And again, that was Sebastian Junger, Tribes. Right. It's called Tribe, yeah. yeah. He's famous for The Perfect Storm and A Book of War. Quite an incredible journalist. I, I really like him. Okay, yeah. You know what? I actually think I heard him on another podcast with Tim Ferriss uh, just a bit ago. And yeah, that, and that is so interesting too. And it's funny that you bring that up. Also, I talk about that all the time with my friends, how you know the rate of depression rates are, are constantly going up. And the fact yes. that we are becoming more and more urbanized, and and the fact that you know a lot of us we seek to live uh, independent lifestyles. You know, it's encouraged in our culture 
to live independent lifestyles. You know, we want to be someone who doesn't depend on anyone else, although we still depend on a system that requires us to work within it. You know, we're not actually self-governing people and we're coming home to apartments that are empty, right? right. So, you know, there's, there's something um, not right here. So what I'm always seeing is the readings with the tribal people, the, the indigenous people, uh, the aboriginal people, uh, they seem to have the environmental part that they're struggling with, right? Where, where uh, you know, they're worrying about their food, they're worrying about their shelter, what they're going to do. However, um, their emotional and their uh, relationship status is so much more, like you would say, it's rich. You know, they have those oral traditions. And uh, how would you think that we would build something like that, um, you know, other than reading the book, um, how would we begin to build our own little tribes like that? I mean, that's that's like one of the biggest questions that I, I keep asking myself personally is, how do I find more people like myself? And how do we continue to build, you know, a community around this? Because there, is a, there are laws in place and there are a lot of things that actually barriers. And I notice it's a lot of, um, you know, to say it, it's a lot of white males that I see that are in this kind of rewilding kind of uh, movement. And it's there's a lot of other people that need this other than myself. And I feel like they're not getting those that type of information. And that's one of the big reasons why I do this podcast. But irony has it <laughs> that, uh, you know, we're inside right now. I'm talking to you over Skype. And uh, half the people or maybe more than half the people that are going to download this are going to be, you know, also... Um, the people that unfortunately do not need this type of help. You know, it seems like the the people who need it the most, unfortunately, don't have the ability to get this knowledge. What What do you have to say about that? Right, and that's a that's a tough conundrum because a lot of it comes down to affluence, and class, and opportunity, and those. That's a whole another can of worms. But I, I would say a couple of things. First of all. It's important to make a distinction and a realization that networks aren't tribes. And this mm. is, in the corporate world, I think people really have a misunderstanding there that if they have a big network, therefore they have a tribe. But our modern corporate networks are just really these um, abstract exchanges of information. They really aren't tribal. Um, and so that's the first thing to realize. The second thing is that the, the fundamental thing that has to happen is people need to have an experience together. Mm -hmm. And this is why I, my primary focus with Exuberant Animal is producing these events, these training events where people come and we, we spend three or four days together in pretty intimate um, conditions with one another, virtually no electronics. And it's all face-to-face -face communication. It's experience. And we may or may not stay in touch with one another afterwards or for any great length of time. But for those three or four days, we have an intense tribal experience. So it's expensive. It's a real hassle to put together. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it because we have that, that intimacy. Yeah, and... Uh that's really what it comes down to me, at least right now, you know, and especially having moved and uprooting my entire life. Uh, that's what I've come to find. And it's funny because I'm finding solace in people like yourself, uh, you know, digitally over the internet. So it's just ironic that, 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 that happens, you know? Um, so that's great. And, uh, you know, that might be a perfect opportunity. So to talk about exactly what your programs are all about, how, how does that work? What, is um, maybe you just want to kind of open that up? Well, I, well I, twice a year, at least currently, twice a year, I open up my home and we do these um, these workshop trainings that are, um, as I said, they're very personal and very intimate. We they include functional movement training, they include meditation, they include the social team building aspect, and they include presentations on the art and science of healthy living. So we, we start out talking about the state of the animal, and we talk about the primate's predicament, we talk about mismatch and the state of the world. And then all of our course content for the rest of the three days is pitched as a solution to that kind of problem. 
So we talk about functional neuroscience. We talk about food. We talk about exercise. We talk about um, social relationships. And it's it's really holistic. It's holistic in a way, in, in, in a very meaningful way, in a way that's very relevant to our, our current situation on the planet. And it's, it's very exciting. So I do that twice a year here at my home in Leavenworth, and it's, it's a long way to come for people, but it's, um, it's exciting and it's super fun. Right. Spend money on experiences, people. Definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, personally, I definitely plan on making it out to an event such as okay. this. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny because I had just gotten back from an event uh, from probably another mutual friend of ours, Rafe Kelly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I did a nice little workshop with Rafe, and he mentioned a lot of your work, as a matter of fact. Okay. And, um, yeah, we were doing a lot of really fun things outside, um, in trees, uh, moving around a lot with partners, making sure that that connection was there, that kinesthetic feeling, touching another person, absolutely important. Uh, that's, you know, maybe you want to touch on that because that was uh, part of the experience for me that I personally, uh, and I know that you do this at, at your trainings as well too, but what is the importance of having a partner uh, in in fitness and um, what is that, uh, what's the importance of having that kinesthetic touch, that feeling of another person while you're in motion? Right, well I was fortunate because I had my experience in martial arts and that was always very much, uh, I had a really good sensei who understood the value of creating rapport with another person. And you do that through the body. So it's, it's conversational in a physical way. Mm -hmm. And you learn to trust other people at a very deep level because you're working with them, you're touching them, you're moving them around. You, you give up control of your body periodically for somebody else to lead the movement. That kind of thing is, um, it affects you much more deeply than just talking. And it, it, it really works. I also went to massage school um, a few years ago, and it was the same kind of thing. You know, you really develop that trust by working with people directly. It's, um, it's that subcortical, subverbal level of engagement with people. So, and, and plus, it's really good for athletic training because when you work with a variety of bodies, they don't all behave the same way. They don't all respond to touch or movement in the same way. So you're forced to adapt continuously as opposed to, say, going to a corporate gym where you have an exercise machine. That exercise machine is the same every single time you sit down on it. But when you work with a body, with, say, a medicine ball or a rope or a strap or whatever it is, now, they, they are different every day. And big people, small people, you never know how they're going to respond. So that, be mindful of what you're doing. And it's, it's very fun and it's very developmental. Absolutely. I can tell you right now from personal experience working with a partner that's, that's moving in these type of natural ways in, uh, in ever-changing environments, um, I woke up incredibly sore I mean it was ridiculous and it was funny because I you know I was in San Francisco I had my dog in my car with my girlfriend and I am totally car camping and I can't tell you I woke up the next day oh my gosh what am I gonna do and it, it was it was intense I actually unfortunately I could not finish the second day of the event because I, I had hurt my back from from doing I don't know a, some parkour movement that we did you know in through the trees um, but you know, it was just goes to show you, I thought that I was a pretty, um, you know, I think I'm a pretty in shape guy, you know, and, and I come from the side where I'm a lot more nutritionally inclined. So I pay a lot more, uh, closer attention to my nutrition than I do my movement. So that's been a real focus for me is finding these mentors like yourself that I can find that I can learn from in the movement space that makes sense and fits within this rewilding frame. Hey guys, real quick, after listening to this episode, I need you to answer two important questions for me. Number one, what is your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health and or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? What websites, blogs, or people online do you follow? That's it. So again, number one, what's your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? 
By answering these two questions, you help me create the content I know you not only want, but need. So again, guys, thank you. That's it. I super appreciate it. You can email me your answers after the show at james at ancestralhealthradio.com. So, you know, how do you incorporate, you know, because it's the big picture and I'm looking for people that, you know, uh, I guess you could say have that peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they're not laser focused, they're more generalist and they're trying to figure out things, you know, uh, holistically. I know we keep coming back to that word. And I know a lot of people don't necessarily like that word, but that's the way I always see it. Right. And, um, and another way to think of that is um, what's called the T model of human knowledge. And the T model is simply, it's got a vertical axis and a horizontal axis in the shape of a T. Mm-hmm. And there's two basic strategies. One is to do the vertical axis, which is digging deeper into your knowledge, which basically means specializing. And then that's where you take one hole and you just drill that rabbit hole as deep as you can drill it. That's one strategy. And then the other one, the horizontal bar of the T, is to broaden out your inquiry. And that's a perfectly valid strategy, too. So what I try to do is balance those two out. For me, I'm really excited about the horizontal bar on the T. I like to broaden my knowledge and occasionally dig down deep. But um, the best, the most holistic model is to try and do both. Pick one specialty and then broaden your knowledge. Oh, well, that's everything about something and something about everything. Absolutely. Well, that, okay, well, so um, right now then, what what exactly are you digging deep in? Well, I'm digging deep. Actually, um, my latest thing that's really exciting for me right now is this rediscovery of Carl Jung. I I remember reading him, um, you know, famous psychotherapist, student of Sigmund Freud. He's got a book, actually, it's a collection of some of his works. The the title of the book is The Earth Has a Soul. And he was a guy who anticipated mismatch and parallel and all of this stuff writing back in the 1930s. He he nailed a lot of our modern dilemmas. And so I'm digging deep with him right now. And it's very exciting to see somebody who was so ahead of his time on the problems of civilization and the problems that we're having adapting to the modern world right now. So that's my laser focus at the moment. Well, interesting. What, so what, what, if we could get one piece from that book, if, if you were to like extrapolate one piece, um, and I want everybody that's listening right now to actually go out, don't Google a summary of this book. You know, think about it this way. Go get a library card. If you don't have a library card, Pick up a library card and please find this book, and we can have a discussion about it over over Facebook. Um, but if there was one thing that you could possibly uh, give us from that book that you find especially interesting, what what might that be? For Jung, the problem with the modern world was what he, he described as the tyranny of the intellect, the tyranny of logic and reason over the unconscious. The fact that we've become so top-heavy and, you might say, head-dominant in the world where logic and reason and intellect now put the, the deep unconscious body in a cage, oh. essentially. The civilizing influences of the modern world. Now, remember, he's right back in the 1930s, and how much more of that is happening today? So... For Jung, it was the, the consequences were severe because if the intellect and reason tyrannize the deep unconscious body, there are several things that are going to happen. The deep animal body is going to become depressed, or it's going to become violent, or it's going to become diseased. And we've seen all of those things now. So he predicted all of this. And for him, it was always. Yeah, he was a real yin-yang kind of thinker, and for him, the solution always lied in creating some kind of harmony or balance or conversation between the, the powers of the intellect and the deep, unconscious powers of the body. And that's a theme that I think is, is very powerful and needs more attention now. Right, and uh, I think science is now validating that fact. Well, I mean, science... 
just science as it is, right? That in itself is now becoming what I believe almost a religion or a faith in and of itself. Right, right. And, and so all of our those mythologies, the way we used to animate the world in a paleo culture, you're always animating the world. You're always telling stories about that. The spirits in the sky or the spirits in the mountain or the river or under the water or in the bushes, wherever they are. We were participants in the cosmos. And that this was a, a fundamental part of the human experience for thousands of years. Yeah. And now here comes the intellect and reason and saying, well, all those stories are false and therefore we need to discard them. But that had consequences and we're paying the price for doing that. So we need to find stories and narratives that, that keep our participation alive. Right. And we also need to have practices. We also need to have um, arts and disciplines that give us meaning whereby we are participating in the world instead of being spectators. Right. And that's and that's and that's another difficult thing right there, I I feel like for a lot of people entering this world is, you know, they they already have routines and systems. You know, they're already set up in a way that, you know, kind of works in the modern world. So for them to kind of unravel not only their thinking about what domestication is, even for themselves, but um, how would they begin even adding new practices in? So, you know, for myself, being new to the rewilding scene, you know, it's hard for me, for example, to find a mentor for, say, hunting, you know, or, um, you know, it's a steep learning curve for me just going out into the wilderness and identifying mushrooms. You know? um, so, you know, there's a lot of these aspects, there's a lot of barriers there, and, um, oh man, I it, it, I forget exactly where I was going with that, but uh, uh, the, the fact of the matter that for me, it's it's difficult for me to enter this, and I'm looking for new systems and ways to, to add that into my life, but I already have so much going on. You know, how do we, how do we prioritize, like, so on your system, we have... Uh, the fitness, you know, the movement rather, habitat and tribe, you say we start with the movement first, getting outside and doing that. Um, yeah. Wh yeah. Where, where would you fit on the, the food scale then? If, if, does that, where does that come into play? The food scale? Yeah, well, not necessarily the food scale, I guess you could say, but um, nutrition. Uh, how, how does, uh, what, is, what, are, what are your thoughts on nutrition and how does that fit into the long body? Well, that's another really wicked problem because um, so much of our food now I classify as space food. In other words, the, the, the fundamental problem as I see it is not the sugar and the gluten. The, the, the fundamental problem with modern food supply is now that it's become disconnected from habitat and it's become disconnected from people. So there's no story that goes along with our food and there's no learning or connection that comes with our food. It's just space food. And that even holds true for some of the super high quality paleo foods that are available now because if you buy them online, it's by definition space food. You don't, you know, maybe you read a story that goes with it, but still, you, you don't really connect it up with habitat. Maybe there's a picture on the website that shows the habitat that your food came from, which is better than nothing. But most of us, most of the time, are consuming space food now, and that's that's a real problem. And you know, we can do farmers markets, we can do, we can try and reestablish those connections. But it's a wicked problem. It's really hard because I gotta eat today. You know, I, right. I, it's it's gonna take a long time for us to reestablish those things. Yeah, it's not like uh, you know, and I always hear this too. It's not like seven billion people can go run to the forest and start foraging tomorrow. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some of these things they they kind of feel like unsolvable problems. Um, you know, we have to. Gary Snyder was great on this. Gary Snyder, um, beat poet, um, wrote this book called The Practice of the Wild, and he grappled with a lot of this. And his conclusion was, you just got to pick one place on the earth and start digging in, and that's, you know, start your practice there, make a decision, make a choice, because you can't do all of it, there's too many problems, pick one place and dig in and make that your practice. That, that was that's great advice. Yeah, and that's and you know what? That's exactly what I'm doing here. 
So for me personally, I'm digging in. Uh, I became a member just for everybody uh, out there wondering what I'm doing about the fungus uh, situation. I did become a member of the Fungus Federation of Santa Cruz here. And Santa Cruz has an excellent variety of mushrooms here. I know Frank knows about that. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm learning from other people. I am finding people. It, it's difficult, but you know what? There are people out there. You just got to look, look for them. Um, so that's, so that's good. What, so I don't know. This might be an interesting question. What, so what have you eaten today anyway? <laughs> I had a variety of vegetables and a little bit of meat. I had some, um, some taco bars, which, uh, that's exciting for me because, uh, I have a relationship with the Tonka company in South Dakota and they provide some of the food for our events. And that's a food that actually, it doesn't, it's not really space food for me. It's it actually, I know where the food comes from. I've met some of the people who are involved. And so when I eat that, it's got a little bit of meaning for me. And I'm, I'm excited about that. <laughs> right. And that's, same here. Like, I love Epic bars. Epic for me. Yes. You know? But then yes. again, I, I'm always coming back to the idea that, so I, I try hard, you know, with my diet. You know, that's something that I really identify with. And it's funny because I'll go to uh, the farmer's market and I'll build this relationship with uh, the farmers and the people who are running their ranches and, and providing this amazing food for me. And I'll actually go back to their farm and I'll see their chickens and everything. But it's funny because the chickens, they're domesticated. The beef is domesticated. You know what I mean? I can still, you know, it's like for all the effort, you're still buying domesticated meat. And, and you know, even though it was humanely raised and it was pastured and grass, grass finished, of course, um, you know, it's just funny to me that, you know, you still, if you really want to rewild, if you really want to get out and you really want to become a part of your ecology, you really need to step out of your comfort zone and become uh uh, you know, more part of nature. You need to become, uh, uh, you need to learn about your bioregional uh, area. You need to figure out uh, maybe the, the local people that used to be there and kind of figure out the uh, the traditional system. So I guess the Oolong people were the native tribe or people that used to live here in the Bay Area. And I know that that's not even their traditional name. But again, I'm still learning and I'm still trying to pick up these practices as I go. But um it's funny that you, you know, for me, it's always been the nutrition. It's always been, that's what I've always focused on first. But I'm starting to realize that the movement seems to actually bleed into more areas of my life. It motivates me more when I'm moving than when I'm eating something, uh, you know, healthy for me for some reason. I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. If you, if you see, like, I've heard other people talk about, you know, if you look at a Whole Foods and you see the people walking into Whole Foods, you know, they don't necessarily all look that healthy whereas if you look at somebody you know going into a gym those people at least aesthetically look healthy right right yeah and you know there's a lot of different entry points that i think are really valid and you can start with the food you can start with the movement those are good entry points but you can start with the social relationships or you can start with just studying habitat um it's it's got to be something that that suits your personality and and turns you on. I was really fortunate because when when I started out I fell in love with the martial arts. I mean I was I was going to the dojo every night because that was something that just fed me and I, I couldn't imagine a better learning environment than that. And so I was there for I didn't change my life at all for seven years. And you know, that was that was wonderful for me. So other people they need to look around a little bit more. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I mean, and movement is such a broad, general term, right? Right. So right. I mean, it could it could be anything. And as a matter of fact, I think I heard you once say that a great way to get into movement and something that's very natural for humans anyway is dance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's another thing. Uh, getting back to Carl Jung and um, the tyranny of the intellect is. One thing that I've, I've seen happen is that ex, the dance now, hunting and dance, have gradually been transformed into exercise science. <laughs> and that's, that's a great example of the tyranny of the intellect. Because we've taken something that is deep, primal, ancestral, 
yeah, thousands of years old. The original human movement after hunting was dance, and now we turned it into exercise science, which is something that um, that I personally find just incredibly boring. And really, it's disenchanted. It's disanimated. It's uh, it's very nearly dead, as far as I can see. So going back to dance, special outdoors, learn to drum. Anybody can learn to drum. I mean, that's that's a basic thing. Anybody can beat out a four count rhythm. That's something that uh, that builds tribe. It builds movement, and uh, it's a lot of fun to do. So that's another way. Yeah. So. Um I'm also going over uh, some of the uh, core concepts on exuberant animal right now, and we've spoken about the long body, and mm -hmm. and also about the short body and what you call, I believe, the short body blues, right? Um, and then we also have an area of neuro optimism. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, yeah, well, the way I came to that particular study was. You know, being an athlete, I wanted to know how to make my body work better, and I, I studied with some uh, athletic coaches, Vern Gambetta, Gary Gray, uh, Paul Check, all these guys really interested in conditioning and training, and um, I knew a little bit about the nervous system, and this was sort of a late 80s and 90s, people starting to make these discoveries about how plastic the nervous system really is, and the, the history there is incredible because when I was in high school, they told us straight up, they said the nervous system doesn't adapt, it doesn't change. You you are born with a certain number of brain cells and those can only die. This this doctrine, this dogma was called neurofatalism and it's a really depressing narrative. Yeah. Uh, this idea that you are born with a certain capability, a certain aptitude that is tested by our schools and such, and that if you have the aptitude, great, but if you don't, well, you're, you're sunk. That narrative is, uh, is really depressing and fundamentally flawed. So what was discovered in the late part of the 20th century were the, the qualities of neurooptimism, neuroplasticity, long-term potentiation of the synapse. The synapse actually changes all the time, continuously, as you learn. That's, that's the neurological basis of um, education and learning. Myelination is another part of that. The insulating wrappings around axons, that, those are use-dependent. So the more you use a circuit in the nervous system, the faster it becomes. This is the basis of habit, you know, for good or, or not. Um, and then neurogenesis, so we actually do, in fact, produce new brain cells. So all of these, these three things add up to this neuro-optimistic paradigm, which um, is revolutionary. It means, basically, that we can learn anything, and all we have to do is put in the time and do the reps, and we can adapt. And it's an incredibly optimistic point of view. It's um, it's underappreciated. We you know, there's big flurry of discoveries in the in the late 20th century, and it's largely been forgotten. Um, so we need to we need to keep that one in circulation. Right. I, I was I think I was just telling somebody the other day how I, I think it's it's crazy how uh, you were talking how uh, in tribes, you know, it was important for the elders to treat treat uh, the younger generation that they were taking care of or tending the land for let's say, seven, eight generations of the future, in the future, you know? And it's crazy to think to me that, you know, in today's modern time, you know, without oral tradition and, and actually just a, a tradition that we can call our own, uh, just one generation going off to war or whatever it is and losing that, all those traditions can be lost, you know? Right. So it can take, oh God, so long for us to create these really strong cultural traditions and yet to lose them. It can just be a flash. Right, right. Those, um, that knowledge is, is precious, and it needs to be sustained. And you know, that job falls to the tribal elders to make that happen. And that's one of the beauties of getting older, is I, I start to see things a little bit more clearly, and I'm starting to, uh, I'm 61 now, and I start to embrace that more and more. It's like, okay, the responsibility is now falling to me 
to share what I have learned. And, you know, a lot of older people, a lot of senior citizens feel like this is their time to buy an RV or to go to the golf course and relax and just do nothing. But I find that to be just absolutely the wrong way to go because now is my time. I mean, now is my time to share what I know and to try and benefit the tribe in some way. And that this is, um, you know, this is a, a paleo orientation. Yeah, you don't strike me as someone who's just going to be sitting around. <laughs> you know, yeah, picking up the dog, getting in the dog. There's just too much work to be done and, um, and too much fun to be had. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to get older. Well, I think, you're, I think you're part of, like, an amazing movement right now. You know, I think there's this uh, this cultural awakening that people are finally understanding. Again, holism, uh, the body, uh, everything about their environment. Um, rewilding is such a huge part of that. Uh, it's funny for me personally, when I heard that word, everything clicked. You yes. know, I, I was like, okay, well, I, the you know, paleo or whatever, quote-unquote, it made sense when I had first heard it, and then it's, you know, continued to evolve. And then, you know, once you delve into the paleo diet and you kind of realize some of these things kind of work for me, okay, where did this come from? Oh, it came from our past. Well, what else from our past is, is working for us right now? And um, that, that's what kind of brought me into this, this world. And it's, it's people like you that really inspire me to become better people, at least in all areas, to be perfectly honest, because your, your system fits in with my lifestyle perfectly. And I know a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, it's going to fit into their lifestyle. And they're just looking for systems and strategies to kind of figure out exactly how they can bring old world traditions or, um, oh, actually, I like, I like your term. Uh, it's the, the, old, the new old way, right? So, so we're trying to bring the new old way. And not necessarily, we understand that there's a transition period and we can, all, again, all go back into the forest and have these amazing hoop cultures and rewilding cultures. But, um, you know, where's the middle ground? What, what type of traditions and cultures and uh, people can we gather in a way that, you know, we can create this lifestyle together? Um, well, that's, the, that's the key word is to create it. Because the, at this point... We don't really have a roadmap to you know how to deal with mismatch. I mean, mismatch is a fundamentally unique human problem. We've never had this before in our history, and we have no experts. We have no body of knowledge to go on how to navigate mismatch. It's it's unprecedented. So the solution, I think, lies in creativity. You know, we we want to have some of the benefits of the modern world, to be sure. I mean, we've invented some beautiful things, but the native traditions are really vital, too. So it's going to take creativity by all of us to put those two together in some kind of synthesis that makes sense. Right. Well, like, uh, there's a documentary that I, I, I think it was the only documentary I'd ever watched, maybe four or five times on Netflix, and uh, it was called Progress Trap. And it was the idea that today's technology has led us into a progress trap. So a progress trap would look like for the hunters and gatherers that their technology became so good that instead of killing one woolly mammoth, they they became so proficient that they knew how to channel them into a gorge and off of a cliff and basically kill all of the woolly mammoths. But then again, that's a progress trap because how were they ever going to harvest all of that meat? You know, and that's kind of where we're at right now. We're in a conundrum where, you know, how do we find a balance between our modern technology and the inherent ancestral wisdom of our past? Right. Uh, yeah, we're up against some huge progress traps right now. Things like artificial intelligence. Oh. We don't even know what we would do with that. Transhumanism. Yeah, I think that leads to a really nice general principle for all of us right now is to slow down. <laughs> because that, that amount of speed and acceleration in the modern world right now is absolutely unsustainable. And if we were to advise people to just do one thing, and that's to slow down, that, that in itself would be pretty valuable. Yeah, and immediately when you said that, uh, I don't know if you've heard that story where they did a study uh, on people in a New York subway train where they had one of the world's greatest violinists set up, and he would play the violin in the middle of rush hour, and not a single person would stop to listen to the world's greatest violinist. And why was that? 
they decided because they were all in a rush. They, they yes. were t on a time constraint, and none of them would enjoy the beauty of the world's greatest uh, violinist. I mean, that was shocking. That, that's what came to mind as soon as you said that. I mean, yeah, slowing down is very, very important. Just, uh, I mean, going outside, slowing down, connecting with your friends and family, maybe even practicing some silence sometimes. That's what I do when I'm in nature. I actually, that's the time that I actually I turn off all electronics. I don't even have electronics. I, I actually leave them in the car. I have my dog with me, and we're quiet. Nice. nice. We just yeah. walk. That's all we do. I'll have my shirt off, you know, we'll, we'll get some of those rays, and that's it. But, um, man, this has been an, an amazing conversation so far. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for at least, you know, a couple more hours about a lot of these subjects. Um, and you know what? I would love to have you on another time where we can probably... So, I feel like now on that, we went on the horizontal plane. Right. So maybe next time, what we'll do is we'll dig a little bit deeper and go vertical, and we'll we'll dig into uh, deeper into maybe some of the long body concepts, and um, exactly how we might do that for another episode. But I think right now uh, we've covered a lot, and um, I want to uh, thank you for your time, also, and uh, maybe you want to tell people about what you have going on, where they can reach you, and. Um, Specifically about your workshops, because uh, I, I also really want to get involved with that uh, in that as well. Right. It's, it's easy to find out about what I'm doing, exuberantanimal.com. It's all right there. And uh, people should feel free to reach out to me and any questions or ideas. That, that would be great. Um, but the event in the springtime will be late April, the last weekend in April, which is uh, the dates are 27th to 30. And people do need to act pretty quick on that because the, I can only fit so many people at my home dojo. So uh, we do have a limited amount of space. What is that, about 20 people? Yeah, up to 20 people, yeah. And um, it's, it's definitely worth the trip. I know there's a lot of hyperbole around these various training events, but this one this one is transformational, and it is holistic, and you'll experience things in, in a very unique new way. Pretty and much everything that we've talked about here, you will be experiencing there. You will be getting a unique movement experience within nature. You'll be connecting with your peers on an intimate kinesthetic level. Yes. And... Uh, you'll be learning more about the lifestyle and practice of the long body. Right, right. And it's, uh, you know, it's so much fun, and it, it feels so meaningful to people that we have a lot of return students as well. So, you know, people are coming back, and uh, we have new people every time, and I'm developing some uh, senior students into trainers, and that also enhances the community feel because it's not just Frank getting up and, and teaching the whole three days. We have new apprentice trainers coming on all the time and you get to hear different points of view and the diversity is really fun. Right, and so, so that's nice. And so, are, and real quick, are, are, um, are they, when they're contributing in new ways, are they adding to your program and philosophy? A little bit, yeah. For the first step is to master some of the fundamentals uh, of the movement teaching, you know, being able to teach the exuberant animal games, um, and then a little bit of the, the slideshow content, being able to master that, and then as they become more comfortable, then adding new material to it. Okay, great. I love that it's a whole picture like that. That's So you even, okay. So I'm getting the whole picture right now as you're saying that with the presentation and the slides and everything. So you're becoming um, a better communicator in the process as well, too. You're, you're able to communicate this lifestyle. The benefit here is that it, you're working on your professional skills as okay. well. You know, it's, it's kind of career development, too. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. And how about um, it, uh, do you have social media handles or anything like that you want to uh, – Definitely go in there. Also, uh, look at the core concepts. That's exactly what we covered here today in the show. 
Um, I think you're going to get a lot out of this, guys. Um, again, be able uh, who's back to the website, ancestralhealthradio.com, and check out the show notes for all the links mentioned uh, in this show. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. In this way, you not only help show your support, but you help us spread the word and place us higher in the rankings. If you can't do that, then share this episode on your favorite social media network or continue the conversation with the tribe and myself on the Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But remember, be sure to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.